0: Uh, this is a study I particularly enjoy, but I want to remind you, uh, If for those of you who were here on Sabbath and joined us, I mentioned a, uh, um, a piece of literature, a new resource put out by the Michigan Conference called the Discipleship Handbook, a resource for Seventh-day Adventist church members. It's designed especially for a mentor, new member relationship that once you come into the faith, you might have heard the idea of the Sabbath or stewardship, but you haven't put into practice or developed a church family. And this material is fantastic for those who are new to the faith or want to reestablish their original commitments to the faith. It's a Mentor's Guide Accompanied Discipleship Handbook, and I'll be talking about that more and more, but the shipment has come in there is a there are a limited number that will be available Be Beginning at our next night meeting which is next not tomorrow but Thursday evening so those could be available starting from then through the weekend at a severely discounted rate uh, thanks to the uh, leadership here uh, of Restoration and the event. So anyway, I just wanted to keep that in mind. We'll talk about that more as we go along. But this evening, we're going to begin our second week of messages, transitioning from last week we looked at the great controversy, the whole cosmic conflict about good and evil, its origins, its elimination, and our role in it. I believe that we serve a God who is fair and just and love. And has us in mind, not just as passive recipients, but active participants in his work of ridding the universe of evil. And so that's exciting to be a part of. And now we're going to transition to, if God is going to have a people on the earth with a message to give in these last days, what is my role in it? And I don't mean me as in me, Cameron DeVazier, as a pastor. But I'm talking about you as an individual member of God's church. What is your responsibility inside of his cause in this day in earth's history. So we're going to begin a study of this uh, work of the church and your role in it this evening with a message entitled, The Ministry of Angels. But before we study anything from God's word, of course, we need to dedicate ourselves to him in prayer. So if you would please bow your heads with me and then we'll be off to the races. Dear Heavenly Father, another wonderful evening here in Loma Linda, California. Thank you so much that you give us life at all. And thank you that for these next few moments we can share some time together. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for not only having a message, but also a method to get the message out. Help us, Lord, to be your messengers. Help us to not only be a part of your society in heaven on paper, but in person, Lord. Help us to be workers for your cause, to hasten your soon coming. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The ministry of angels, we're going to start in the book of Revelation. If I were in a group of people who are completely biblically illiterate, and there might be some in the crowd, and I'm not knocking that, that's fine, but the book of Revelation is the very last book in the Bible, the 66th book, right before the back cover. Okay? And in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, who was a follower of Jesus Christ, he was known as John the Beloved, at one point he was one of the Sons of Thunder, but now he's John the Revelator on the island of Patmos, Perhaps most likely the last living apostle who knew Jesus Christ and he was stranded on this island. But the Lord himself came to him at that time and revealed to him some important things for him to write down for the church's benefit and encouragement and edification. And it records in chapter 4 a particularly fascinating experience. Starting with verse 1, we read, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open, where? In heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. A little tip for your spiritual walk. Anytime a door opens in heaven and a voice says, Come up here, go. Go. You're going to see wonderful things. Isaiah will tell you about this. You know, Ezekiel will talk about it. John will tell you about it. Anytime heaven is open, you get a chance to see in there. It's going to be worth your while. And the very first thing he sees when the Spirit took him off in vision was a throne set in heaven, and was it empty or was it occupied? It was occupied. One sat on the throne. That was the Father on his throne in the very throne room of heaven itself. The story continues. Around the throne were 24 thrones. You'll start to notice that everything in chapter 4 and 5 is enumerated. It's counted off in numbers. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, I don't want you to wander off into any kind of nature of God conversation in your own mind and get distracted this evening, but you'll never find the term Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. But that's not to say the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in the book of Revelation in symbolic language referred to as the seven spirits of God. Notice the reference to numbers all throughout the book of Revelation. Numbers, colors, symbols have meanings, and this one represents the completeness of the Godhead. Seven spirits of God. This is the Holy Spirit. So, so far, we've seen the Father on the throne, the Spirit before the throne, 24 other thrones with elders sitting on them. And then it mentioned more things enumerated. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. Please pay attention to the next sentence. The first living creature was like a what? Lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. A lion, calf, a man, and an eagle. The faces of the four living creatures. So now we have the Father on the throne, the Spirit before the throne, 24 other thrones, and four living creatures. And of course, in Revelation chapter 4, there's no mention of Jesus Christ, but he does make a grand entrance in chapter 5 and verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a what? Lamb in what condition? As though it had been slain. Notice that this is Christ, the capital L, Lamb, now in the courts of heaven after having been slain. It has the scars to prove it, if you will. Jesus is here pictured as returning from earth, having completed his mission, victorious over Satan and death, yet with the scars remaining. Yes? Having seven horns and seven eyes, and explains what that symbolism means, which are the seven spirits of God, now they are sent out into all the earth. That is the Holy Spirit poured out. Very quickly, I'll tell you, just to give it away, that what we're seeing in Revelation 4 and 5 is heaven's perspective of the day of Pentecost. Jesus returns victorious from his death and resurrection, and now he goes into heaven with the scars to prove it, walks into the throne of God, and he sends out the promise that God had said. Once Jesus leaves, in his place will come another helper. And that's exactly what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Friends and brethren, what you now see and hear, this is the He paraphrasing, of course, Peter here, but he said this was the sign we were told to watch and wait for, the return of the Holy Spirit, indicating that Jesus has been accepted by the Father and is now at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Okay? Now, most of the sermons that you probably ever heard in your life from Revelation 4 and 5, I hope you've heard some sermons from Revelation 4 and 5. Most of the attention, most of the, most of the focus is going to be on either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, or the 24 elders, or the four living creatures, And they are central, pivotal figures. Each member of the Godhead has their own role to play in salvation. The 24 elders are most likely the sons of God in the book of Job, where that council met. Fascinating. The four living creatures are a whole other fascinating study. And most of the ink goes to focusing on those beings. But I want to show you that in the Revelation chapter 5, that there's another group of beings that far outnumbers all the beings we've listed so far. It's fine in chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many, what? Angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. You have the throne, you have the living creatures, you have the 24 elders, but beyond that, there's a whole sea of what he here first calls many angels. And then he counts them off. Now, I'll pause right here. I'm not here advocating a literal numerical understanding of the number we're about to read or a figurative one. You can study and pray that one out on your own. What I would like to venture is that it's really, really big either way. Okay? That's my whole premise for right now. Notice this. And the number of them, that is the number of the angels, was 10,000 times 10,000, which, of course, equals... 100 million and thousands of thousands. So if the number were to be literal, it's at least 100 million plus thousands of thousands more. Or if it's figurative, it's a whole lot. But regardless of how you read that passage, it's a lot more than the three members of the Godhead, the four living creatures, or the 24 elders. Though most of the attention is focused on those central figures, the vast majority of heaven's population are not those beings, but in fact, an almost numberless, (laughs) huge expanse of angels, which begs the question, why does God need so many angels? What is their role in the work of redemption? What is their purpose in God's work here? Well, the good thing is we don't have to guess. The Bible is its own interpreter. And in the book of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul, in describing the supremacy of Christ over all created beings and all over all other ministries and ministers, compares Christ to the angels and describes the work of angels in verses 7 and 14 of the first chapter of Hebrews. I appreciate those who are looking up in their Bibles because this could always have a typo or just be wrong. Your Bible is always the key, right? And notice what it says here. And of the angels he, that is God says, and now he's quoting the Psalms, who makes his angels spirits and his, what's that word? Ministers a flame of fire. Do you notice there's an equivalence between angels and what? Ministers. And then he goes on to ask rhetorically, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Notice that it's the angels who are sent forth to work for the lost on behalf of God. The angels are God's front line workers in the plan of salvation. In God's government, they are the boots on the ground, if you will. Let's take a look at this. Genesis chapter 28, way back at the other end of the Bible describes the flight of Jacob after he stole the birthright from his brother. And this, there's a whole lot that goes into that context. But for right now, let's focus on this. Because God gave him a revelation, a vision, a dream, that went uninterpreted for hundreds of years. Watch this now. Jacob's on the run and he lays down. Bible says, He came to a certain place and stayed there all night, because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. So, so far, it's a pretty benign passage. He's tired, he lays down, he sleeps with his head on a rock. That's it. But while he was sleeping, notice what happens. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to where? To heaven. heaven. So you notice you have one ladder that reaches all the way down to the earth. Praise the Lord, by the way, that it doesn't dangle above the earth, right? Nor is it so short that it hits the earth, but it doesn't quite reach heaven. No, no, no. This ladder is big enough, long enough, sufficient enough. It goes all the way down to the earth where man is, but it extends all the way up into heaven where God is, right? And there, that is there upon the ladder, the angels of God were ascending, which means what? Going up and descending, which means coming down. So this ladder is a conduit between earth and heaven for the angels to go up and down. Is that clear? Okay. And that's basically the end of the dream. Jacob wakes up. And he calls, he says, this, this is the very gate of heaven right here. He sets up an altar. And that's the last we hear of this mysterious ladder for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, it's not mentioned again in the Bible except for one other time. And that's all the way in the New Testament in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, or since you have your Bibles, you can follow along. John chapter 1, Jesus is beginning his public ministry on earth. And here at the very beginning, he's collecting his very first disciples. He called Andrew, and he calls Philip, and... Of course Andrew finds his brother Peter it's interesting Andrew is always mentioned as Andrew Simon Peter's brother Simon Peter gets all it but there wouldn't be a Peter without an Andrew let me just tell you right now the Seventh Adventist Church has enough Peters what we need are a fleet full of Andrews to go out and find someone but that's a whole other sermon Philip of course was impressed with the with the Messiah as well and he went out to find someone else and it says here in verse 45, Philip found whom? Nathanael. And said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm guessing right up until Nazareth, Nathanael is all excited. We have found him. Oh, Moses in the law. The prophets wrote. It's Jesus. Yes, where's he from? Naz- uh, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip's answer is flawless. Philip said to him, Come and see. He does not open up the scripture and argue and debate. Nathanael is a student of scripture. He's eager to see the Messiah. He's a genuine seeker for truth, but he has his doubts. He's a skeptic of the news, Right? So he's genuine, but he has doubts. He's a seeker, but he's skeptical. Now Jesus knows that Nathanael needs a different approach than Andrew and Philip. So notice how Jesus treats Nathanael, who's coming to test and see if Jesus might be the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Now that is high praise coming from Jesus. Nathaniel was a genuine searcher for truth. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And watch this tiny little sliver of a fraction of a miracle. Watch closely. if You blink, you might miss it. Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you no, I don't know where the fig tree was in relation to Jesus. Perhaps it was over a hill or around a corner or off over the horizon, but apparently it was significant enough that it's not a normal piece of information. He had to have supernatural insight into his previous circumstance for Jesus to say, well, sure, you know, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael is so close to the kingdom already that that one toehold of evidence is enough. Watch what he says. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. A minute ago, he was like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And he's like, oh, you're it. You're the Messiah. Jesus is almost incredulous. He's like, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? (laughs) You will see greater things than these. You know, I can almost imagine Jesus sitting there saying, well, that was easy. (laughs) I certainly hope the rest of my ministry goes so swimmingly well. I hope everyone I see just needs one word of evidence and they're ready to accept me. Of course, that wasn't the case. But for this man, he was genuinely seeking and that little toehold of evidence was all he needed. You're You're the Messiah. But notice what Jesus says in response. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? He's like, that that little insignificant little tiny miracle is all you needed? He said, you are going to see greater things than these. Question for you, what things is Jesus talking about? Miracles, Miracles, right? He's like, the fig tree was nothing. Blind people are going to see. Mute people are going to speak. Deaf people are going to hear. Lame people are going to walk. Dead people will live, and you're going to see it. Fig tree is nothing. Now, I want to impress upon you that Jesus is clearly referring to the miracles that Nathaniel will witness when he follows Jesus, okay? That's important, because look at the next thing Jesus says. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Friends, what was the ladder, or more correctly, who was the ladder that Jacob saw in Genesis 28? Jesus Christ. How do we know? Because Jesus himself showed up and said, that ladder is me. Now what's significant about this, notice that the ladder was set up. The ladder is stationary. The ladder is in in, in a position set. The moving parts aren't the rungs of the ladder. It's not a conveyor belt. It's not, you know, an escalator. It's a set point, and the moving parts are what? The angels. Every time someone's in trouble, the ladder doesn't go down, help them, and then pull back up and then go down. It's not the ladder going up and down. It's the angels going up and down on the ladder. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ is that unshakable, unmovable conduit between heaven and earth, never to be moved again. Amen? Amen. But what heaven has accomplished through the ministry of Jesus is to give access to humanity that now the angels can work on God's behalf here in the earth. Does that make sense? Now watch this as it plays out. By the way, the Bible, this isn't some hidden thing. The Bible ubiquitously says this, just overtly. Watch this. Psalm 91. Speaking of how God will care for those who have faith in Him. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all their ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So how does God care for His people? He sends out angels who are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation. Perhaps the most famous example of this is found in Daniel chapter 6. There are many, 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 many examples of angels working on humans' behalf from God's authority, but I want to point this one out. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel was cast into the lion's den with the expectation, at least on the casters, that Daniel would be devoured, eaten, and ended that night. What is fascinating, I like to bring this out, that there was no exit strategy for the lion's den. You just go in, right? The law of the Medes and Persians said you had to go in, but it didn't say you couldn't come out. The implication is anybody who goes in doesn't have to worry about how you get out because you don't come out alive, right? So if you recall, King Darius tried for all kinds of loopholes and ways to get out of the law he had signed, and he couldn't get him out. But then he thought, aha, if the Lord preserves his life this night, then I can let him out tomorrow because we fulfilled the law. Watch this. When he came to the den, he cried with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Notice his says you serve God, and if you're on his side, God can save you. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God did what? Send his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. God works on man's behalf through his angel servants, his ministers from the throne of heaven. Okay? Now, let me give you a little illustration I built a house by the way this, I'm not making this up this is the actual house that I built um, in Idaho when I was working there I decided to stop renting and take the same money and build a house I thought it was a very good financial move and the Lord blessed and it was nice and as you can see it's the cutest house you've ever seen I loved it I cared for it and I sold it for a profit amen all right But what's fascinating about this is I get to say, legitimately, legally, I built the house. But not one time did I ever pick up a hammer, a saw, I didn't drive any nails, I didn't pour the concrete, I didn't do the plumbing, I didn't do the electrical, I didn't do the insulation, I didn't do the roofing, I didn't do any physical labor to build this house whatsoever. Not one bit. But at the end of the day, I get to legitimately say, look, I built a house. How do I get to do that? Think about it. How do I get to say that? And some of you are like, you don't. No, I do. (laughs) I get to say that. But why do I get to say that? Why does that claim get to be true for me when I didn't have hand in the work? Yeah, somebody's saying it because I paid for the thing, Right? It was my choice of where the house would be, which lot would be mine, what design would be mine, all the different things. I chose it, it was under my authority, and it was by my means. But let me tell you the process. Even when I built the house with my money, with my authority, the person I hired to do it, he didn't pick up hammer and nails either. I hired a contractor, you know what he did? Hired subcontractors, right? You know what the subcontractors did? Hired a bunch of 16-year-old kids. (laughs) Some day, some some kid built my house, and I've never met him, right? Facetiously, I'm sure they were all OSHA approved. It was all legal. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying, but there were a bunch of people I never met who put their hands to this work, but at the end of the day, it's my house. Friends, let me give you a very, very, very important principle right here, right now. Most of the work God does, he does not do personally or directly. He does through agents who do his work for him. Now, let me be clear. There are certainly things that God rolls up his sleeve and does hands-on himself with his voice and his face right in the moment. When God says, let there be light, he didn't say, hey, angel, go make light. God declares it, and it is so. His word has power. He is all-powerful. He can do things directly. When he wanted to give commandments to man, he met with Moses with his own finger and wrote down and spoke those Ten Commandments. When the world needed a Savior, he didn't send an angel, he sent his son. Just be clear, there are things God does directly, but most of the things that God does in behalf of humanity, he does through his created beings. The credit goes to him, but the work is done by others. Are we all on the same page? Let me show you a fascinating example of this right from scripture. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 8. Now I'll tell you right now, we're going to read two versions of this story this evening. The first is found in Matthew 8, the second is found in Luke chapter 7. And for the, um, for the superficial reader, for the casual reader, or for the um, looking-to-be-proved-right skeptic, you could point to Matthew 8 and Luke 7 and say, aha, the Bible is contradictory, it is therefore uninspired, it is of human origin, it is full of mistakes and and errors and must be discarded. Or you could read it correctly. Now, I don't say that arrogantly, but you must take a look at the context and understand how there's not disharmony, but beautiful harmony between Matthew's account and Luke's account of the same story. Okay? Now, the simplified version, the nutshell version, is found in Matthew 8, and that's the one we'll look at first. Now, when Jesus entered, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Keep that phrase in mind. A centurion did what? Came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord... My servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. So far, it's a very simple interaction. A man has a need, goes to Christ, beseeches him, urges him, pleads with him, and Christ says, I will come and heal. Let's continue with the story. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he doesn't. Notice, please, several things here. First of all, the centurion is not an Israelite. He's not a Hebrew, he's not Jewish, he's a heathen, a Gentile, a pagan, if you will. He might be a true believer in God, but he knows that Jesus has been called for a special mission and he knows that he very well, very could heal his own servant. So he appeals to him. But when Jesus offers to come to his house, the centurion says what? No. No. And he gives two reasons. What's the first one? I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. This Gentile knew that he was dealing with someone spiritually far above his position in life. And he says, slow down, no, 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 no. Your offer is too kind. You go too far. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Does he still want the servant healed? Yes. But if Christ doesn't come, how will it ever happen? Well, he goes on to explain. Point number two, why you don't have to come to my house. For I, and he look at it, he says, I also, also with whom? With Jesus. He said, look, you and I have something in common. There's a whole world between us, right? But in this one regard, I'm like you. I also am a man under what? Authority. He's like, I'm part of a hierarchy, a chain of command. And he explains what he means. Having soldiers where? Under me. This was a man of high position. He had people who worked for him, and he explains. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So when the Certurian said, you don't have to come to my house, just speak the word. Sure, he could be meaning, your word alone has power to cure the disease from a distance. But is that what he's meaning? He explains what he means. He means your word has authority to command someone else to do it for you. He says, this work, simply healing my servant, is far below your pay grade. Send someone else. When Jesus heard it, he what? He marveled. Now, it's a lot of times you'll see in Scripture where the people that listen to Jesus are astonished by his teaching, for he spoke with authority and whatnot. But here, Jesus marvels. And he said to those who followed, he's like, did you guys hear that? Everybody stop, listen. Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Every time I say, I'm going to go to your house today, they're all like, great, come on over. But to this centurion, I say, I'm going to come to your house. He said, no, I'm not worthy. But you can still do your work from here. Just send one of your servants. Commenting on this, the desire of ages. Oh, no, I'm sorry, we're not there yet. Let's now compare the two stories. Matthew 8 to Luke chapter 7. I want you to watch for the apparent discrepancies and see how, in fact, they are not at all discrepancies. They're just a fuller telling of the same story. Okay, watch now. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servants. Do you see the huge difference between the two stories already? One says the centurion went, the other specifically said he didn't go, but sent people in his place. So let me ask you a question. Did the centurion go to Jesus? We could, we could do a show of hands. How many yeses? How many noes? Well, in a certain sense, no, he physically, personally didn't go, but he sent his request through an agent, right? By the way, look at how kind these Jews are to this Gentile. It's beautiful to see these walls broken down. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one with whom, for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. It's like you really, this is a good Gentile, Why don't you go, <clears throat> do the thing, you know, uh, heal him. Well, that's a pretty shrewd move. The centurion's never met Jesus, and he thinks, well, maybe he'll be influenced by these Jewish, let me put my best foot forward, send the best, Jew, you know, let me, you give my best case. And they say, please, do help him, Jesus. He's rich. <laughs> Notice this. Then Jesus went with them. But does he get all the way to the house? No. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I don't even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. What's fascinating when you read Luke's account is you realize that Jesus and the centurion never directly spoke to each other. They never even saw each other face to face. But they had dialogue back and forth through their agents. Right? Now, Desire of Ages, page 316, commenting on this encounter. Written from the first-person perspective of the centurion. As I represent the power of Rome and my soldiers recognize my authority as supreme, so dost thou represent the power of the infinite God and all created things obey thy word. Thou canst command the disease to depart and it shall obey thee. So number one, his word could directly get rid of the disease without any middleman. His word has power. But then he has, thou canst summon thy heavenly messengers and they shall impart healing virtue. Either way, you don't have to come. Speak but the word, and my servant shall be healed. It's fascinating. Now, when I first heard this quoted, this passage I'm going to share with you right here, I had to look it up for myself to make sure it wasn't, you know, some urban legend ascribed to the Sister White that wasn't a reality true. But it's really there. You'll actually find it in three different places. This is from the Review and Herald, January 21, 1873. Read very carefully what it's saying. The angels of God are ever moving up and down from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth. All the miracles of Christ performed for the afflicted and suffering were, by the power of God, through the ministration of angels. What's that first one say? all the miracles of christ were done through the ministration of angels she continues all the blessings from god to men to men are through the ministration of holy angels this is how i get to say most everything god does he doesn't do directly he does through his servants his workers, his ministers, his angels. That's how God's economy in heaven, how his government operates, the logistic methodology. Thus, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, you know, sometimes we look at these famous passages and we think of them as something we say over and over. Ironically enough, just before this, he said, do not pray in vain repetitions. And what have we done with the Lord's Prayer? We say it as a vain repetition. Sometimes it is devoid of meaning. It's just a form. It's just a ceremony that we say. But look at what Jesus, and again, the true Lord's prayer is not until John chapter 17 where we eavesdrop on Christ's prayer to his Father. But this was the template that he gave to us for how to approach the Father. And notice that he says, In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father where? In heaven. We're appealing to that one that John saw on the throne. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And of course, the name of God is a representation of his character, of his person. So after you approach the Father in heaven, recognizing the holiness of his name, then we appeal, your kingdom come, and notice this, your will, that is what you would like accomplished, be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ said, if you want to speak to God, recognize who he is, where he is, and then what he would like done. And what God wants done is to have his work here on earth accomplished in the same way that his work in heaven is accomplished. And sure, there's the three members of the Godhead, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, but most of heaven is filled with individual foot soldiers willing to go and do whatever Jesus says. And he says, that's what we need to see here on earth. I want to close with this one. Now we're going to get to our bonus material, I promise. For those of you who came just for that, it's coming. But historical sketches, page 288. Listen to this statement. There are hundreds of millions of men, women, and children who have never heard the truth. And multitudes are constantly going down to the grave without any sense of their accountability to God. How can you, who repeat the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven... Sit at ease in your homes without helping to carry the torch of truth to others. How can you lift up your hands before God and ask his blessing upon yourselves and your families when you are doing so little to help others? Is it possible that we can have every confidence that we're going to be getting into heaven when in this earth we have not developed a mindset that would fit in to the society of angels? Angels who, by the way, are not just sitting around watching Jesus... They're working for Jesus. What God desires to see on this earth is a people who, just like the angels in heaven, will do whatever he says, go wherever he goes, and do the work he gives them to do. But let me just cut to the chase, and we're going to be building on this theme for the rest of the week. I have a grave concern. I've been in ministry for 15 years now, and I've seen a whole bunch of churches And one common thread that I see that needs a reformation is most Seventh-day Adventist churches, perhaps other Christian denominations too, but I know this one that has given this unique message at this last day of Earth's history. We have a model where one person works and a hundred people watch. When in reality, we need to flip that in. We need to have a hundred workers where there's only one now. God said, think about this and work on earth like the angels work in heaven. She concludes her thought, by the way, with this. The heavenly messengers are doing their work, but what are we doing? Simple phrase, brethren and sisters, God calls upon you to redeem the time. I believe it's high time that God's people be about God's business and hasten his soon coming. I believe we need a reformation within the church where we're not satisfied with merely being members on the page, but actually workers in the life. We don't need a bunch of watchers. What we need are workers. And I'll tell you this right now. I think there's far too many members in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. What we need are missionaries. We need people willing to go and do instead of just sit, be, and watch. Let me ask you a question. Has, we, have it, made, has it made sense tonight? Praise God. Hopefully it's convincing that it's true, but then convicting that, man, i got to do something about that i got to do something about that. And again, the bonus material is coming up, but I want to pause right here for a word of prayer, talk about what's coming tomorrow night, and then show you one of the coolest things you're going to find based on this, okay? So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you so much for giving the privilege of receiving the salvation provided in Jesus Christ. But Lord, please raise our expectation of what it means to be a member of your body here on earth. Train us, equip us, send us out as your workers and help us not to be satisfied being merely watchers. Lord, take us out of the member-only range and let us be missionaries for you wherever you put us today. Help us to win souls for you. And Lord, help us to see Jesus come soon and very soon. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, tomorrow evening does not have a meeting here. But tomorrow day, when you come, not if, but when you come, I want you to study this out tonight. Who fed the 5,000? Who fed the 5,000? Go study it, think about it, get together with your friends so you can come up with the right answer. We're going to quiz you on it tomorrow, but I'm going to show you a couple examples from the ministry of Christ that perhaps you've never seen before, at least in this particular light. Who fed the 5,000? It's a fascinating study. Tonight was average, tomorrow's going to be stellar. You don't want to miss it, okay? But here's the bonus material. All right? Now, you recall the beginning of this study. We went to Revelation 4 and 5. By the way, our, our evening is over. If you'd like to leave, you may. Thank you. (laughs) We went to Revelation 4 and 5. John saw a door open in heaven. He goes up and he was shown the throne room of God. You had the Father and you had had the the, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the three members of the Godhead. You saw this layout of the throne of heaven, the, the throne room there. Now in Exodus chapter 25, Moses met with God on the mountain and as God was organizing his People called by his name, the children of Israel. At this point, they were simply being the family of you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob coming out of Egypt. They were not a holy nation yet. He was forming them. If you recall, Exodus 19, they arrived there at the foot of Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, he gives them his law. And this is Exodus 25, while Moses is still on the mountain with God receiving instruction from him directly. Okay, One of the things God told Moses to do as he's building a nation on this earth... He said, and let them make me a what? Sanctuary. And of course, a sanctuary, sanct, is a a part of speech. You know, it's it's a part of a word, a prefix that simply means holy, set apart as sacred, right? A sanctuary that I may dwell where? Isn't that beautiful that God wants to dwell with his people? Okay. But then he adds, he doesn't say, and therefore go and be creative, make whatever you want. He doesn't say that. He says, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Did God have a blueprint he expected Moses to follow in the erection of his own tent? Yes. Yes. He said, I want to have a tent among all my people, but you make it according to my plans. Hebrews chapter 8 fills us in on where that blueprint came from and what was that all about. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have, speaking of Jesus Christ, after he resurrected and went into heaven, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, where? In the heavens. And then he adds, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now is that to say that the one that Moses made by man's hand was the false tabernacle? No, no. It's not true versus false. It's original versus copy, right? In fact, he explains that very thing. Continue on. Speaking of Jesus' ministry. He said, if he were here on earth, like if he were just another man, he would not be a priest. Why? Well, there already are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. The earth has plenty of priests. It was heaven that needed a priest, right? And notice these earthly priests serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So let me ask you a question. When Moses was building that tabernacle, the pattern was a pattern of the things which were where? In heaven. So what was Moses shown? Either heaven itself or the blueprint of heaven itself. And he said, make my dwelling on earth just like that one. Are we good? All right. Now, most of us in the room, this is not news to us. We're aware that, that that imagery of the sanctuary that was on earth was merely a copy and shadow of what in heaven. It says it specifically right there. What I was unaware with, of until relatively recently was that the rest of the whole camp was supposed to also be built on a pattern that God told them. Watch this now. Numbers chapter 1 Because, see, I had in my mind, of course, God was very specific about each piece of furniture in the courtyard, in the holy place, in the most holy place of his tabernacle, just so you should make it. These dimensions, these materials, these people work on it. Very, very specific. And then everybody else back away and go camp. That's the picture I had in my mind. But that's not what the Bible describes. Numbers chapter 1, verses 52 and 53. The children of Israel shall pitch their tents, everyone by his own camp, So notice you weren't supposed to choose wherever you wanted to camp. You had to camp along with your family, right? There were 12 different tribes and everyone had their place. Everyone by his own, now what's that word? Standard. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Keep that in mind. Apparently everyone had a family and every family had a standard. According to their armies. But the Levites shall camp where? Around the tabernacle of the testimony. For two reasons. First of all that there may be no wrath on the congregation because they're supposed to be the representative of Jesus Christ and be the buffer between God and sinful man, right? So they represent that. And the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of testimony. They're the ones who are going to work there, so they're the ones who live closest to it. Does that make sense? Okay. Everybody else was supposed to camp around. So you had the God's tent, the tabernacle, the courtyard, holy place, most holy place. And then around it, you would have the Levites. And beyond that, you would have all the other tribes. Are we good? Okay, let's keep going. Now, Numbers chapter 2, just continue on. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. What is the standard again? Here it is. Beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some different distance from the tabernacle and meeting. So every family had an emblem, had a logo, had an icon, had a banner, a flag with an image on it some sort of representation that said, oh, that's my family. Now, I believe this is for a couple of reasons. First of all, let me reflect on it this way. When the children of Israel went into Egypt, there were just about 70 persons. When they came out of Egypt, there were almost 2 million. God used Egypt as an incubator. And you seriously, read it in Exodus chapter 1. It almost says that. Man, they just get babies everywhere. Everywhere, Pharaoh, what is going on? So they take off, and you know the whole story. They get out of Egypt. Now they're a massive group of people, including the mixed multitude who are with them. And they're a huge group of people out on the desert floor. I I, I worked in in the great state of Florida for four years, about an hour south of Orlando. And Orlando has the distinction of being one of the great tourist traps in the universe and it's got some of the largest attractions for visitors and entertainment things on the face of the earth. You know, you can think of every I mean Disney World, SeaWorld, you know, Universal to everything. And all the parks are huge and 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 for every big mammoth park there's an equally proportionally sized mammoth parking lot. These parking lots are so big and you've got some stuff like that out here too. For sure you've been to a place like this, surely. The parking lots are so big, you don't go park your car and then walk to the front door. You park your car and then you get a ride from your ride to the door, right? Now, if you go there early in the day because you want to get the money worth out of this $5,000 ticket it costs or whatever, you go there and you're eating, like, it's not health message at all. You're eating funnel cake and ice cream and all kinds of, you know, soda pop or whatever, and then you take all these rides and the heat stroke and stuff that you give from it. It's actually a miserable day. You come back... Exhausted, and you stumble out to this parking lot. And for instance, I drive a compact silver SUV. On any given day at Disney World, do you have any idea how many compact silver SUVs there are? Yeah, maybe three, four trillion of them, something like that. There's a lot. How am I supposed to find it? Yeah. And some of you hold up your you know, so that's what we could do, you know, forty eight hundred acres of bloop, bloop, bloop you know. Is that how, no, that's not how you do it. They don't expect you to remember where you parked your car, by the way. Section yeah, it's sectioned off. And what are you looking for? Pinocchio. You're looking for Pinocchio, right? <laughs> or, or, the, or the dolphin with the sombrero on or some silly thing, you know, whatever the thing. You're looking for that image. He's like, I didn't look for my car. I look up for the thing I'm parked next to. Every camp in Israel, everyone had a place in their family, and every family had a sign, a banner that you looked for. Now, that's fascinating. Just out of curiosity, we can look this up if you want to go and you know Google it or whatever. But Jewish history will tell us what each of the family tribes' icons and logos was. You want to take a guess what was the image on Judah's lion? You guys are such you're scholars, right? Clearly, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? They were, they were familiarity with these things, and that's exactly what Judah was. Now, that's going to be an important point when we come back in a minute. Okay? Now, if there are 12 tribes besides the Levites who camp around the tabernacle, and the tabernacle has four sides, then how many tribes need to be on each side? Three. Amen. Good. And then it breaks down on each side which tribes are going to be according to the cardinal directions. Okay. On the east side, toward the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces with Judah shall camp. So each cardinal direction had one primary tribe. On the east, it was Judah. And the other two tribes who were with him were Issachar and Zebulon. Now, I know this is a little minutia, but it's going to get really cool in just a minute, okay? On the south side shall be the standard of the forces with whom? Reuben. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon. Then comes the tribe of Gad. Okay? And it's just walking around. On the west side shall be the standard of the forces of Ephraim. Next to him comes the tribe of Manasseh, then comes the tribe of Benjamin. And finally, the standard of the forces with Dan shall be on the north side. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, then comes the tribe of Naphtali. So all around the camp, again, we're going to build this picture. The middle of the camp was God's tent. Courtroom, uh, courtyard, holy place, most holy place, and all the furnishings. Then around it, surrounding the tabernacle would be the tribe of Levi, which would be the physical caretakers and the sons of Aaron, which would be the spiritual workers in the temple, in the tabernacle. And then beyond that, there would be three family units around each side or on each side, each one having one main tribe at its head. Okay? It's a very organized camp. Now, what's really cool is if you go to the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 24... I believe that his chapter 24 is not like some hidden numeric reference. It's just coincidental, but you'll see in a second. Now, these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. So the priests who worked in the tabernacle were to be further divided according to their terms of service. If you remember, when God came to Zechariah and sent his angel to talk about the birth of John the Baptist, why was Zechariah in the temple? Because it was his turn. Right, this was an ongoing circuit of service. Okay? Now, these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But you know what happened with Nadab and Abihu, right? right? And it mentions it. And Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. Therefore, Eliezer and Ithamar ministered as priests. Then David divided them according to the schedule of their service just out of curiosity, how many divisions do you think there were in the year? You might think, oh, 12. One for each month. But no. Watch this. When he counts them out, trust me, the names are not the important part here. It's the number I'm looking for. The 19th to him. The 20th to that other guy. The 21st to Jachin. The 22nd to Gamble, The 23rd to Deliah. The 24th To Messiah. And that's the end of the list. It's twenty-four rounds of service. This was the schedule of their service for coming into the house of the Lord according to their ordinance by the hand of Aaron their father, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. Aaron didn't make this up. The Lord said, I want you to further divide the work of the priests into a circuit of service divided into 24 sections. If you don't see where we're going yet. This is where it gets really cool. If you were to walk through, remember in John's vision, the very first thing he sees is the very throne of God. Okay, Which the earthly representation of that was the Ark of the Covenant with the Shekinah glory, with the two covering cherubs. Do you remember that? In the most holy place. If you were to start from the inside of the camp in the most holy place, you'd see one sitting on the throne. Then you'd walk out and you'd see seven lamps of fire burning. Just like John saw. Then around the throne and surrounding the throne were 24 thrones, right? And beyond that was a great sea like crystal, and he saw four living creatures. Friends, this is exactly what Israel was designed to look like. You'd have the very throne of God in the most holy place, the seven lamps of fire burning, and outside and surrounding it were the twenty-four circuits of the priests and their role and their work. And then you'd have Ephraim, Dan, Judah, and Reuben, the lion of Judah. Reuben's, by the way, happens to be a man. Ephraim happens to be an ox or a calf as his symbol. And the standard of the family of Dan was an eagle. What John saw in Revelation 4 and 5 is exactly what God wanted to build ancient Israel to look like. Why? By the way, they weren't just supposed to be physically lined up like heaven. They were also given the law of heaven and asked to start living by it. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them for this is your wisdom and your understanding the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law, which I set before you this day? Imagine if someone had never heard of ancient Israel, but nomadically wandering across a desert hill, they come and they see for the very first time the encampment of Israel. Two million people. What's the very first thing they notice? It's organized. Like a Swiss watch. It's precision. Two million people. Everything on right angles. Let's say they wander further into the camp and they meet some of the Israelites. They're healthy. They have a health message. They don't have the diseases that all the other nations have. They're friendly. They're all keeping the Ten Commandments. No locks on the doors. No crime. No murder. No stealing. No divorce. Everybody honors their parents. Everybody keeps the Seventh-day Sabbath. And in fact, every seven years, you get a year off. I almost don't care what the guy believes. If you give me every seventh year off, I'm going to be a faithful employee, right? (laughs) They're like, I don't know anything about your God, but the laws around here are awesome. (laughs) Right? And they say, how did you guys come up with this? I'm glad that you asked. Take a walk with me to the middle of the camp. And you teach them about Jesus. Jesus. Friends, the reason God organized his people in this way was because God wants his people to be a living demonstration of his order and his principles, a little piece of heaven on earth. Let me ask you a question, friends, if they came into this place, would they say order? Would they see structure? Would they see fidelity to the principles of God? personal high standards of living, yet a joy that comes from a closeness with their creator? Would they experience heaven on earth right here tonight? This is where we overlap with last week's. God wants his people to be a living example that his plan is a good plan. That even this world of rebellion, he can take these people and turn them into citizens of his kingdom who would fit in when he comes to take them home. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of God I can think of, that he cares enough to order us and structure us and transform us into his image, that we can reflect that character to the world and hasten the coming of Jesus. That's the bonus material. When I first saw it, I was like, (laughs) "Wow!" and I wanted to share it with you. Can we have one more word of prayer before we dismiss tonight? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your instructions in the word of God, for teaching us your principles, for being a God who wants to dwell among his people. Lord, help us to be your people, not just by profession, but by personal experience. Lord, help the laws, not to just be written on stone, but to be written on the fleshy tables of our heart, and let us all collectively be a little slice of heaven in this world gone mad. Lord, we cannot do this on our own, but we ask for your Holy Spirit to empower us, to transform us, and to make us like Jesus. For We pray it all in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse